This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and managing editor of the Business of Government magazine. For almost 15 years, the IBM Center for the Business of Government has sought to connect research to practice, sponsoring third-party research on a broad range of public management issues facing us today. Over the last decade, newspapers have been filled with stories of leadership failures at the local, national, and global landscape across all sectors of society. We've witnessed a litany of failed policies, corrupted morals, poor execution, and dereliction of duty. Therefore, the task of growing leaders has become as important a task as can be found today in public service, one which will determine whether government programs can be run efficiently and produce the performance and results citizens expect and deserve. The critical need to grow the next generation of public service leaders is a central responsibility of leaders themselves. Leaders beget leaders. It's about inspiring the next generation to serve and transform the way government works. So why do certain leaders succeed or fail? And how do leaders of very diverse agencies direct ambitious change? What strategies do they use to overcome opposition and win allies? Over the years, Professor Harry Lambright of the Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs at Syracuse University has produced more than five IBM Center reports and a host of articles exploring these questions and more. In those pieces, Professor Lambright has tackled a wide range of subjects, from big science and energy to NASA and the space shuttle. Yet a single constant runs through all of his work, the importance of leaders in particular and leadership in general. Today, I'm pleased to have Professor Lambright here as my guest. Professor Lambright, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Good to be here. So, Professor Lambright, before we delve into specific reports or research you've done for the IBM Center, I'd like to set some context around the importance of leadership and the role of leaders today. So over the last decade, newspapers have been filled with uh, stories of leadership failures. Uh, What has happened to our leaders? And would you describe for us what has been called the leadership deficit or the leadership vacuum? Okay. Well, I, I think that the potential supply of leaders is still there. In other words, just as a You've got a lot of people, just as you have people with brains, you have people with good health, you have athletes. So you also have always a potential for leadership. I do think that the environment for leadership has changed uh, and in such a way as to make it harder for leaders to emerge and once they do emerge, to be successful. Uh, Professor Lambright, over the years, you've produced more than five IBM Center reports and a host of articles that have tackled big science, energy, NASA, and the space shuttle. And yet a single constant throughout this research has been its focus on leaders in particular and leadership in general. 
Why have you focused on leaders and leadership as a research topic? I think because I'm interested in success and failure in government. And I believe that leadership is one of the critical variables that make for success or failure. In fact, I think it's probably the single most important ingredient. Uh, Professor Lambright, I'd like to turn to your most recent IBM Center report, Forging Governmental Change. Uh, These are lessons from the leadership work of Dr. Robert Gates of DOD and Dr. Francis Collins of NIH. Uh, This report continues the IBM Center's long interest in leadership and transformation. Why have you focused on Dr. Gates and Dr. Collins? I, I focused on those two men because they were Clearly, individuals, there was a consensus, I think, that they were excellent leaders, were successful in the past, and were currently being successful in the roles they were in, in in DOD and in NIH. I also uh, focused on those two because they were uh, men who would provide some lessons for leadership from very different kind of contexts. One being one being the Pentagon and the other being a, a research agency. So, Professor Lambright, this report examines the role played by Robert Gates as Secretary of Defense from 2006 to 2011. And once he took over that role, he really did focus on weapons reform and put it at the top of his agenda. Would you tell us more about his efforts in this area? Why did he pursue weapons reform? What exactly did he do? He came in. The Iraq War was on. Afghanistan as a secondary front. Secretary of Defense uh, has two jobs. One is manager and the other is sort of a weapons manager. And he related the two. He came after Rumsfeld. And Rumsfeld had said, you go into war with what you got, the army you've got. And in that connection, the weapons that the military had were not uh, what they needed. So he felt he had to do, he had two major tasks with, with respect to the weapons side of his job. And one was to get the weapons that were available into the field faster. And the other was to uh, change the mix of weapons development from uh, purely Cold War to kind of wars that uh, he felt were coming down the pike, such as uh, as represented by the one in Iraq. What were some of the challenges, the key challenges faced by Robert Gates in pursuing this transformational change within DOD? I think every, he the face the one that I think any Secretary of Defense faces. You have a military-industrial complex which is geared to a, a status quo. It's a monster, uh, and once it gets momentum, it's hard to change its path. So you're dealing with the services, and you're dealing with the contractors. And if you want to make any changes at all, you're up against quite a bureaucratic and industrial momentum. So, Professor Lambright, I'd be interested to understand the core leadership qualities that Dr. Gates possessed that made him successful at DOD. How did he use these qualities to overcome the various obstacles he faced during his tenure? Well, I think I think you, you start first with uh, a man of tremendous experience in government management. He had a long career in the national security area in, in different ways. Uh, so he understood what he was up against. And so when he came into office, he had his own, he had an agenda and got started on it immediately, hit the ground running. So I think uh, knowledge of the organization and, and, and an agenda that he wanted to pursue with, with real priorities, and then the understanding of how to go about uh, getting that agenda into action, uh, 
getting certain people in the services on his side, making sure the president was on his side, and uh, and moving uh, very adroitly where he could uh, at at the time that he came into office. Remember, he as you know, he was a Republican in uh, under Bush, and then he was t- retained by Obama. He used the opportunity of the transition of being retained by Obama as an opening for getting a lot of the reforms uh, through that he had had thought about under Bush. He was very adroit in his timing and when he moved. He saw, he understood the the moments that were open, the windows of opportunity for change. So, Professor Lambright, that's an interesting story, but what leadership lessons can we derive from Secretary Gates' time at DOD? With respect to moving the weapons that he had, that were already available into the field faster, the challenge he had was was institutional and personal. One was the institutional was that the the, the entities that were in charge were simply geared to a different time frame than he wanted. So he had to take that task out of the mainstream and set up a, a separate unit to handle it because he regarded it as a priority and. and uh, that also meant he changed the leadership of that particular task. So I think you can learn lessons. If you want something badly and you think it's important and you think the existing mechanisms and people for dealing with it aren't the right ones, then you have to give it special attention and give it a special organizational context. And with respect to weapons development, he went about change in a similar way. Uh, that is to say, he, in some respect, he changed people but he also used the bully pulpit and spoke out about some of the systems that he thought were absolutely a waste of public money. And the use of the bully pulpit, oh, as defense secretary, I don't think is, uh, happens that often. And uh, he did a very good job and was very successful in painting certain weapon systems as a, as a waste of money. He built a public relations constituency uh, about what he was doing. Uh, so that he was able to accomplish this. It took a while, but he was able to get it get it done. So now, Professor Lambert, I want to turn to the other leader you discuss in your recent report for the IBM Center, and that's Dr. Francis Collins, director of the National Institutes of Health, NIH, since 2009. Would you tell us more about Collins' efforts in seeking to reform NIH specifically and in medicine in general? How did the National Center for Advancing Translational Science, or NCATS, factor into his overall effort? And why did Collins pursue this transformation? Collins had a background at NIH uh, and uh, had uh, been had headed the Genome Project. And after the Genome Project was, was essentially accomplished, he uh, was, I think, to some extent disappointed that a lot of the what was possible to translate the uh, innovation into practical cures at the bedside didn't happen very fast. And so when he became head of NIH, I think he was extremely conscious of the fact that there was a real gap between what NIH as an organization, a great research organization, was doing and uh, the ability to move that uh, those, those discoveries, those scientific discoveries, into use quickly, uh, or as quickly as he thought they they could be moved. There was obviously the pharmaceutical industry, but the pharmaceutical industry tended to one react slowly, but two 
reacted only to those kinds of uh, discoveries that they saw a fairly large market for. So there was a, a huge, there was a real serious gap, not just one general one in terms of knowledge into practice, but particularly for medical areas that didn't have giant markets, diseases that were relatively rare, for example. So uh, he felt a, a need for NIH to do much more to translate science into practice, science into cures, and uh, NCATS became his instrument for realizing that particular mission. So, Professor Lambright, why did Collins want to establish NCATS? NCATS became a vehicle, and he believed that he couldn't just talk about it. He had to actually have an entity within the organization. And in his organization, in, in NIH, he had learned from his work with the Genome Project that you can do a heck of a lot more if you have a, a, a inst- an institute-level base from which to do your work. In his particular context, you have to be an institute to have clout. So setting up NCATS was a way to realize this new mission and give it, and it gave it an institutional advocate. So, Professor Lambright, what were some of the key challenges Collins faced in pursuing this transformational change within NIH? I think some of this, it's actually interesting because, in a sense, just as the any Secretary of Defense faces a military-industrial complex, so a head of NIH faces a health uh, research uh, pharmaceutical complex. There's a tremendous bureaucratic investment both on the part of the government and industry in in the status quo and the way you do things. And the way you do things may actually have many positive benefits and advantages. But if you come in and you see a a gap between what you believe is being done and should be done, then you essentially have to take on this complex, but uh, we've got to have some change. And in the case of NIH, he also faced a dilemma uh, in the sense that he had a certain number of institutes, and, and under the law, he could not enlarge the number of institutes he had, uh, so that uh, he was in a situation to do anything new. He not only had to change things, he actually had to get rid of another institute to make room for the new one that he wanted to create. So he had a particular uh, problem. So, Professor Lambright, what were some of the core leadership qualities that Dr. Collins possessed that enabled him to successfully stand up NCATS? And how did he use these qualities to overcome the various obstacles he faced? Oh, I think, first of all, uh, Collins himself had a lot of prestige when he came to the job because of what he had done at NIH before Genome Project, just as, uh, just as Gates had prestige when he brought to the job. When he, when he took over DOD. So I think that one of the central lessons is that experience matters and a kind of a track record of success matters, uh, in, uh, that you want to bring to the job. Uh, you have, you have, uh, had, you have tried to do this before in some way, shape, or form. So you know, you know something. You're not an amateur at change. I think that Collins and Gates had enormous persistence. They both started off with the agenda, knowing what they want to do, and they then prioritize, and then they go about doing it. I do know that I was told that Collins put 25% of his time into uh, getting the NCATS established, and he had you know, to deal with a terrifically difficult uh, environment given the 
world of continuing resolutions and budget cutting that we've had in the last few years. Uh, but he was enormously persistent. He prioritized. So, Professor Lambright, you point out that Dr. Collins succeeded in getting NCATS established, but it wasn't an easy effort in governmental change. Uh, would you elaborate on a number of lessons that may be learned from this experience? Yeah, I think that lesson one is to know what you want to do when you come into the office and try to think long term. Uh, what is it that needs to be done? Uh, what can I do in the brief time I've got to be in office? Uh, and uh, make sure, I, and if I believe it takes an institute or an organizational change or an inst- organizational creation to do it, uh, go at that because that's pretty hard. But the advantage of doing that is that you'll have something in place when when you have to leave someday. So I think that uh, his ability to look at look ahead, figure out what he could do, what kind of legacy he could lead fairly early on, and then build a constituency for it. He went about both uh, Gates and Collins both did this. They they immediately began building a constituency for this changes that they wanted to make. He recognized that at NIH, there are institutes and there are people that are really important and carry a lot of weight. Uh, at NIH, you've got, you have people like Fauci, who is always on television and talks about infectious diseases. You pretty much have to have him on your side if you're going to make a big change at NIH. Varmus, who used to be another, used to be head NIH and retired, uh, and then he brought him back to head the Cancer Institute. He got him on his side. So you think long term, but in the short term, you go about your business and you build a constituency for it, both inside and outside of the organization. Just as Gates went around the country giving speeches about what kind of weapon systems the country needed, uh, Collins went around the country giving speeches about need to translate science into action very rapidly. So he built an internal, both both men built internal and external constituencies for their visions. So, Professor Lambright, given your research for this report, do leaders of different agencies use similar strategies to achieve transformational goals? And to what extent does context matter? I think uh, the strategies can look the look similar, like as I say, building constituencies, but the way you go about it is very different depending on your constituent, depending on your agency. Uh, Gates and a DOD hierarchical kind of organization could be fairly preemptive. He could get rid of people. And in the report I wrote, I pointed out that uh, that the difference is that Gates, that in at NIH, you, it was sort of a quasi-academic environment. You have to build more consensus and sort of work by the by the by the tools of attrition. Um, and uh, he did that. So, Professor Lambright, as we close on this particular report, is there any general lessons learned that we would like to share from the experiences of Dr. Gates and Dr. Collins in leadership and action? Oh, I think this is to have a vision of what it is you want to do when you go into the job and then try to bring people around to agree with your vision. And if you and if you have any kind of, uh, if you have opposition, you've got to find a way to neutralize it. Typically, you do that by having powerful people on your side. In the Gates was the president with the Collins. It was uh, some of the leading lights with NIH and a advisory board, advisory body composed of some of the 
big guns in the medical field and, and pharmaceutical industry, too. Leading NASA, three administrators in retrospect, and what they can teach us about leadership when our special edition of the Business of Government Hour, A Conversation with Authors, returns. The latest edition of the Business of Government magazine delves into a diverse set of topics and public management issues facing us today. Hi, I'm Michael Keegan, the editor of the Business of Government magazine, and with each edition I present the leadership stories of a select group of public servants and complement their frontline experience with practical insights from thought leaders, merging real-world experience with practical scholarship. Check out the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine and find out. Download or order a free copy at businessofgovernment.org. This is The Center This Week, highlighting the latest trends and best practices for improving government effectiveness, brought to you by the IBM Center for the Business of Government. I'm Michael Keegan, Managing Editor of the Business of Government magazine. The Center This Week is our opportunity to inform, and most importantly, to invite you, our listeners, to use the IBM Center for the Business of Government as your resource, a how-to resource for improving government effectiveness at the state, local, and federal level. Advances in biomedical research seek to enhance health and length of life and reduce the burdens of illness and disability. The National Institutes of Health, NIH, plays a significant role in making this happen. U.S. life expectancy has increased dramatically over the past century. Not only are people living longer, they're living healthier lives. However, as Dr. Francis Collins, director of NIH, notes, science is not a 100-yard dash. It's a marathon, a marathon run by a relay team that includes researchers, patients, industry experts, lawmakers, and the public. Dr. Collins outlines how basic research prompted a revolution in the diagnosis, treatment, and prevention of diseases, and what NIH is doing to advance biomedical research. NIH spends about 53% of its budget on basic research, and that would be defined as research on some aspect of biological processes that does not have an immediate implication or application to a disease. But you have to understand how life works at the most fundamental level before you can really understand what disease is all about. So this is the foundation of everything we do. And over the course of many decades, uh, the basic science research, which has led to no less than 135 Nobel Prizes for NIH-funded grantees, uh, is the way in which we've often then gotten to the next level of understanding about a biological process, and that in turn has led to insights about disease, which are now making big differences uh, clinically. If we want to continue to see those medical advances going forward 10, 20, 30 years from now, we need to be doing the basic science now that is going to provide that foundation. This foundation illustrates that basic discovery and the development of therapies go hand in hand. It's about understanding the genesis of disease at the fundamental level. Dr. Collins continues. Basic science, uh, trying to understand at the fundamental level, what are the causes of various rare diseases? Rare diseases collectively affect about 26 million Americans, and there are about 7,000 of these rare diseases. In the space of just the last 10 years, we've uncovered, using basic science strategies, the molecular basis of about 4,700 of those diseases. Just breathtaking, the rate at which this insight has been coming forward. Of course, that's useful in terms of getting a grasp on what the diseases are all about, but what you really want is to translate that into an intervention. 
Only about 250 of those diseases currently have any treatment at all. In the end, it's about turning discovery into action, which, though necessary, is quite risky. Here's Dr. Collins. By having now made those basic discoveries, we're poised uh, to be able to translate that into action. And that is, in fact, a major focus of a new center uh, at NIH, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. There are a number of steps that you want to follow once you understand the molecular basis of a disease. They're complicated, they're failure-prone, they're risky, but we know increasingly uh, how to do that. And that's a, a great example of how, at the present time, the basic science informs the translation. I should say, this is also a virtuous circle, that, that when you make a, an observation at the basic level that leads you to clinical insight, sometimes when you try this out clinically, you learn something about the basics as well. And you go around that virtuous cir- circle to your benefit uh, over and over again. How does the new National Center for Advancing Translational Science work to make all this a reality? Dr. Collins elaborates. So NCATS, this National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences, was very much founded on the need to try to identify what are those systematic bottlenecks that cause this process to be so challenging. And it is. The average time it takes to go from a good idea about a new treatment to getting that drug approved is 14 years. The failure rate is well over 99%. Now, an engineer looking at a pipeline like that would say, come on, there must be something better you could do here uh, to improve success and shorten the time. And that's what NCATS aims to do, to look systematically in a way that no single project focus would achieve. Where are the bottlenecks? Where are the things where we lose momentum, where time goes by more than it should, uh, where failure rates are way too high? Could we take some of the new science that's coming forward in the last few years and really re-engineer that pipeline? That's what we're trying to do. Today, technological advances are driving science. We need to look no further than the cost of DNA sequencing to see this dynamic at work. The cost curve for sequencing is dropping at a breathtaking rate. Sequencing speed has increased even faster than computer processing speed. Dr. Collins elaborates on the implication of this trend. If you want to pick an area of technology that just takes your breath away in terms of the speed of its progress, uh, it would be DNA sequencing. That first human genome sequence that I had the privilege of overseeing the team that managed to pull this off cost about $400 million uh, when it was completed in 2003. You can now get your human genome sequenced uh, for about (laughs) $7,000. Think about that, 400 million down to 7,000 in the space of just about nine years, and the cost continues to plummet. So we will, in the next three to four years, certainly achieve uh, this goal that many people thought was a bit overly audacious, uh, namely the $1,000 genome, but we're well on the way to achieving that. How will that change things? Well, it already is changing things in cancer, increasingly as part of research studies, And it won't be long before this finds its way into the management of cancer in general, is the desire to know in any given individual's cancer exactly what has gone wrong in those cancer cells that's causing them to grow faster than they're supposed to. Because cancer is a disease of the genome. And now we have the chance uh, to look comprehensively 
each individual at a time uh, in what's gone wrong there and what you might want to do about it. Because knowing that, you can then choose the right combination of targeted therapies that are not one size fits all, but are designed for that person's specific molecular signature. That's just one example. Certainly, all of us in the next decade will probably have the chance to have our complete genome sequences placed into our medical record. That will give insights into what you might be at risk for in the future. It will give insights into, if you fall ill, what drugs should be used for you and what dose, because individual differences can be predicted uh, by a study of the DNA. So it is going to transform the way we approach many medical problems, but not overnight. There were some overly optimistic predictions that this was going to happen in the blink of an eye. It takes a lot of hard work, a lot of research, a lot of driving the cost down to make those things come true. Why is the work that NIH does so important? Here's Dr. Francis Collins. I would say there has never been a better time in all of history than right now to come and join this enterprise. We are unraveling mysteries that have puzzled us for all of human history. We're poised to take that information to the next level in terms of preventing and treating disease. We have the chance to bring the basic and the clinical aspects of research uh, together in a very tight uh, connection and a virtuous circle. This would be the moment uh, if you're in any way inclined uh, to get involved in a great detective story that has great answers, uh, come and join the biomedical research team. We've got stuff for you to do. More information on this and other center resources is available at businessofgovernment.org. There you will find how the business of government is not business as usual. For the IBM Center for the Business of Government, I'm Michael Keegan, and this has been The Center This Week. The management of the federal workforce, including executives, will be a critical factor in the next president's success. How do you strengthen federal senior leadership, including political appointees and career executives, and enhance their collaboration? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores this subject with Doug Brooke and Maureen Hartney, authors of Managing the Government's Executive Talent. Tune in on Mondays at 11 a.m. for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors exploring ideas for improving government effectiveness with Professor Harry Lambright, author of a host of IBM Center reports on leaders and leadership. Professor Lambright, I'd like to transition to your terrific and insightful piece you did for the Business of Government magazine, leading NASA three administrators in retrospect, and that would be Dan Golden, Sean O'Keefe, and Michael Griffin. Your research explores why agency leaders succeed and fail and why some leaders do well at certain points in their careers and others poorly. Given your research, how critical is it that the skills and operating styles of leaders align with the needs and tasks of their agencies and the political settings of the times in which they find themselves? I think it's extremely critical if you want success. And the more alignment you get between the man, the organization, and the times, the more likely you have success. If you have partial alignment, you'll have partial success. If you have no alignment, you can be you can be guaranteed a failure. So, Professor Lambright, I'd like to explore Dan Golden's tenure as NASA Administrator from 1992 to 2001. You called him a space enthusiast and an entrepreneur. Would you tell us more about his leadership style and provide an assessment of his tenure? Yes. 
The man who had the job before Golden was fired, and Golden was brought in with a mandate to change. The organization was seen as stodgy and, and, and flailing around and not, and not getting anywhere. What, what the Times called for, what the political masters called for, both Congress and President, was somebody to shake up the organization. And he had a style that could do that, but it was not just for the sake of shaking up. Uh, Golden clearly uh, had, was a spaceman and uh, had once worked for NASA, so he knew something. He knew a lot about the agency, and he knew what he wanted to do. So he came in, and he assessed the situation, and he quickly decided that this is what he wanted to do, and uh, that and he decided and he did, had the support of the president. This was initially uh, Bush, uh, and uh, then then he stayed with Clinton and had the support of Clinton. He had certain characteristics that were. Uh, remarkable he as a he was an engineer and a very good one but he was really a great salesman so he had political skills as well as technical skills and he was extremely good with the environment that is to say the white house and the congress and his techniques which he called faster better cheaper fit the times perfectly he said i can give you more for less he's and he and he could pull off a lot. He understood that microelectronics was a revolution, and you could build some of these machines faster, cheaper, and more more inexpensively. And so the robotic side of his job was handled pretty well. He also understood that the space station, which he inherited, which was his biggest single program, was in deep trouble. And he learned very quickly that he had to build a a stronger political constituency inside the country for the space station. But he also needed the president for the space station because uh, Clinton was going to, was, at once, was being advised by his budget bureau to um, get rid of it. So he understood very well that this was a new world with the end of the Cold War. And the space station, which had been approved by Reagan, as a, to deal with the rival, the Soviet Union, now could be redeployed as a instrument of peace in the post-Cold War era with the Russians as a partner. Uh, and he deserves tremendous credit, his, from, I mean historically significant credit, for uh, saving the space station by bringing the Russians aboard. I think he was uh, unusual in that he had vision, real vision, uh, genuine vision, and and not just vision technical, but vision political. I think I, I, I have a great deal of uh, admiration for the way he handled this situation. Uh, I think inside he was disliked intensely by many people because of his style, which was intense and contentious and uh, confrontational, intimidating, in fact, which actually got him in trouble later on. So how was his leadership approach suited for the times, and what lessons can we learn from Dan Golden's tenure? Yeah, yeah, it was suited. When he came in, NASA's situation was uh, pretty bad, uh, and uh, he really had to make major changes internally. The space station was handled in a way that was uh, ridiculous and uh, would have doomed it, certainly, in, in time, if he hadn't made radical changes. 
it had to be reshaped organizationally to make the kind of reshaping of that one project uh and also the the uh, the Mars project uh which was in trouble he had to make major changes and and uh, he he was pretty uh, pretty brutal. He made a distinction between leadership and management, and he says, "I'm a leader, not a manager." And a leader does what he thinks needs needs to be done. The one lesson is that your style will that may fit the times uh, may also get you in trouble later on. He stayed a long time. He's the record setter, nine and a half years, and they, that uh, that change agent style, which I think served him very well in the early days, eventually came to came to haunt him a bit because people were afraid to tell him things, fearing that they might lose their jobs if they did. And the consequence was that the fact he overreached with his faster, better, cheaper style. And eventually that led to two Mars failures in a row that he might have been able to head off if he had listened or if mess- if he w- if he didn't have a reputation for killing the messengers i think he had a number of successes pathfinder is the best example then he had some failures toward the end of the end of his term if he had left a little earlier he might have saved himself a lot of trouble but he stayed a long time and maybe another lesson is there's a limit to how long you can stay in any of these government jobs. So, Professor Lambright, the next NASA administrator I'd like to focus on is Sean O'Keefe, who was the head of the agency from 2001 to 2005. And you refer to O'Keefe as a generalist manager and political operator. Would you elaborate and tell us more about his leadership style? And how would you assess his leadership? And was it suited for the times? Well, he was brought in because he was a financial manager. He was deputy director of the uh, OMB. And NASA's biggest problem was the space station, as it was Golden's biggest problem. And but it now was up, and the issue was expenditures uh, and the fact that there was a considerable overrun. So they hired him to to be a, a financial to bring the space station uh, under control financially. So his skills, his his style, etc., suited at times very well in his first year. The second year of O'Keefe, he had the Columbia disaster, and so the financial manager had to become a disaster manager, and that was a marvelous uh, transition for him. I mean, he handled that extraordinarily well, I think, and he was uh, he was a good manager, uh, a good manager. In his third year, he sold the president a new mission back to the moon and on to Mars. Uh, which, which essentially was a use of the Columbia disaster when you have the president's attention to, to try to get a new mission established. So he became a, a, a bit of an entrepreneur. But throughout, he was a quiet entrepreneur. He was not flashy, flamboyant, the way, the way Golden was. He, and he was more approachable than the intense Golden. But when he made a decision, he, he could be very, he was very determined and would see it through. Uh, so I'd say that O'Keefe uh, fit the times very well. Uh, and this was a, had a, a, a brief but uh, a successful uh, venture. He made some mistakes later on that uh, hurt him. 
in terms of building a constituency for that decision. But he got the he got the Bush decision, and I think that's to his credit because that was a major. To me, if if you're looking at history, you say, well, Golden's major achievement was getting the space station saved and then up. I'd say O'Keefe's major uh, historical mark was getting NASA through the Columbia disaster and then using the disaster to get a decision that took NASA out of low Earth orbit, at least potentially. So, Professor Lambright, what leadership lessons can be learned from Sean O'Keefe? Well, there I think you've got a situation where he comes in and he does, he's not a spaceman, so he doesn't, unlike, unlike Golden, he doesn't have a, um, a vision of space for space policy, but he learns quickly to deal with situations. And I think this lesson here is that leaders sometimes have to be extremely flexible and adroit in dealing with changing situations, some of which are totally out of their control. And you have to play the hand you're dealt that you might not have wanted. And I think O'Keefe had that when he dealt with the Columbia disaster. I think the central lesson for O'Keefe for that, for leadership there, is is you is so, you have to some you have to be prepared for the unexpected, and sometimes the unexpected is uh, is is a disaster. So the next uh, administrator we discuss is Michael Griffin, who led NASA from 2005 to 2009. And you refer to him as a space technocrat and an implementer. What do you mean by this reference, and would you tell us more about his leadership style? Mike Griffin was a, was an engineer's engineer. He had many degrees. Many people thought he was probably the most qualified technical man that NASA could have had to implement the decision uh, to go back to the moon and on Mars. So he, he had written a book about space vehicle design. So he came in, and I think the expectation on the part of everybody was that he was going to be the implementer of the decision that O'Keefe had gotten adopted. The style he had was that of an outstanding technical person, and he went fairly deeply into the actual design of the shuttle successor. Uh, His style was uh, technocratic. Uh, He was not political in the sense that he didn't he didn't really even if if O'Keefe was a political operator inside the beltway I think I think Griffin really had a lot of trouble with that part of his job he was much more comfortable with making technical decisions and uh, he made some very important technical decisions uh, and he pushed he he was very determined uh, he's very persistent and uh, he understood that if he could get the technical system that he was designing uh, far enough along that it would be hard to stop even after he was gone. He moved with enormous uh, speed and intensity in the design process and in the letting of the contracts. He was uh, more the manager, technical man, than the politician. And his problems had to do with the politics of building a constituency, particularly with, uh, with the scientific community and, with, and, and even with Bush to get the money uh, to do what he wanted to do. So, Professor Lambright, in the end, was 
Griffin's leadership style suited for his times, and what are the lessons that we can learn from his tenure at NASA? I think his technical abilities were, were outstanding. I think that there's a lesson to be learned about that, that, that we all know, you, I, people who study public policy know, is that the politics of administration, the politics doesn't stop after you've gotten your op- adoption decision. That implementation is a, per- is a process full of politics, too. And so you need a salesman, an advocate, uh, after the decision is made. Uh, I think it would have been better if you could have had more of a team and with, uh, with a more politically capable individual uh, in charge of NASA in the in the period after uh, O'Keefe left. In an ideal world, O'Keefe would have stayed to implement as well as to get the decision. And then Daniel Griffin is number two. So, Professor Lambright, what lessons can be derived by the current NASA administrator, Charles Bolden, from the experiences of his predecessors, and would you elaborate? I think an administrator has to realize that it's he has, he has to think about the long term for his organization and the mission that uh, suits the long term, but he has to be very flexible in the short term. The long term, in other words, he has to think strategically, but he has to act tactically. I think this is true of any administrator. You only have so much time. So because you only have so much time, you've you got to think long-term, and they ask the question, what can I do in the short-term in the period I'm in office to further that longer-term mission? And I think that so you have to be a strategist and also a tactician, and, and the tactics are very much political. You also have to build capacity in your organization to keep going with that mission after you leave. Because you have, a, you have an external job and you have an internal job. You have, you're a leader. As a, as a leader in government, you're a politician, but you're also a manager. The Rise and Fall of the Space Shuttle, Leadership Lessons. When this special edition of the Business of Government Hour, A Conversation with Authors, returns. From forging a unity of effort in homeland security, to strategizing today how to feel the U.S. Army of tomorrow, to pursuing affordable housing, eliminating fraud, waste, and abuse in health care, and securing cyberspace. The latest edition of the Business of Government magazine delves into a diverse set of topics and public management issues facing us today. Hi, I'm Michael Keegan, the editor of the Business of Government magazine. And with each edition, I present the leadership stories of a select group of public servants and complement their frontline experience with practical insights from thought leaders, merging real-world experience with practical scholarship. The purpose is not to offer a definitive solution to many of the management challenges facing government executives, but to provide a resource from which to draw practical, actionable recommendations on how best to confront these issues. Check out the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine and find out. We bring you insights and interviews from government executives who are changing the way government does business. Download or order a free copy at businessofgovernment.org.
The management of the federal workforce, including executives, will be a critical factor in the next president's success. How do you strengthen federal senior leadership, including political appointees and career executives, and enhance their collaboration? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores this subject with Doug Brooke and Maureen Hartney, authors of Managing the Government's Executive Talent. Tune in on Mondays at 11 a.m. for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors exploring ideas for improving government effectiveness with Professor Harry Lambright, author of a host of IBM Center reports on leaders and leadership. The Space Shuttle was a remarkable technological creation, perhaps the most complex machine ever built. It was also an extraordinary government program. Professor Lambright, would you give us a brief history of its genesis and its retirement? Well, it starts in 1972 decision with a decision by Nixon and the man in charge of NASA was a man it was a guy named was James Fletcher and the, the period of development extends to uh, the end of the 70s when uh, Jimmy Carter is president and uh, at that point uh, a decision is made to provide it the necessary funds it was ill-funded in the early days under Nixon uh, in the early 80s, uh, Reagan is president, James Beggs is administrator. The decision is made that the space shuttle is ready to go operational and that NASA could shift over and begin trying to sell and also build the International Space Station. That turns out to probably be an, an incorrect decision. Uh, it really wasn't ready, but it was moved in that direction of operations. And uh, eventually there was this Challenger disaster in 1986. Took a while for it to recover. By the time, I think it was 88, 89, when it was back to flight. And it flew well for years up until you have the Columbia disaster in 2003. And at that point, it's people recognized, as they should have recognized earlier, that it was a great machine and tremendously significant in every way, shape, or form. We couldn't have built the space station without it, but that it was flawed uh, and that it was definitely not operational. It was still an experimental machine, and uh, the decision is made that it's going to be retired no later than 2002. 10, actually, it was retired in 2011. So there are many leadership lessons, both positive and negative, to be learned from the shuttle experience. Would you elaborate on some of these key leadership lessons? In some sense, there are two sides of the same coin. To sell a program in an environment such as Fletcher faced back in 72, you have to be optimistic. You have to believe sincerely that a certain technical program is, is going to be capable of doing what you say it's going to be doing with the amount of money that it, you can get and in the time that you say it's going to do. And I think that, that that optimism is part of selling in a political environment. And I think he did it well. And he built a constituency for it that involved the Defense Department and, the, and industry. He did that, and that's positive. The negative is that he should have pointed out at some point, he or his successor should have pointed out 
Well, it was pointed out eventually by a successor under Carter that there had been simply uh, too many technical compromises because of the inability to get not to have the money that you needed to build this thing, and it was uh, creating a machine that has some serious flaws. The lesson is that you have to be optimistic to sell, but you have to be realistic also, and you can go too far in the optimistic direction. Another positive lesson from the shuttle is that leaders, a succession of leaders recognized its importance and they kept it going, even in the face of setbacks such as uh, the Challenger disaster. If they hadn't had a group of leaders who were willing to say, this is our priority, it never, never would have happened. So I think a lesson to be learned is that it takes us a succession of leaders who have commitment and working in very different kinds of environment to bring about great uh, achievements because great achievements take a decade or more to bring about. Uh, Professor Lambright, those are very important leadership lessons to learn from the shuttle experience. The proposed NASA space transportation system that has been announced differs from the shuttle system. It is an exploration system bolder and more ambitious than the low Earth orbit shuttle. What's the status of this effort, and how does the approach differ from the previous NASA programs? Well, this is actually a design more like the Apollo project than it is the shuttle. It involves a rocket with a capsule on top of it. One of the differences between, and it was, and Griffin, when he designed it, called it Apollo on steroids. It's kind of a cross, but it has some shuttle characteristics too, but it also is, but I think it's more like Apollo. It's expensive and will take a long time to build. And the plan is that it will be built in stages and that it will uh, grow in its uh, capacity to lift heavy weights. It ultimately will be a rocket capable of going to the moon and then ultimately to Mars. So it is a major, major, major technological project, uh, much more ambitious than the shuttle. And it will have to be realized over a course of you know a couple of decades, I suspect. So, Professor Lambright, the emphasis in our discussion has been on NASA leadership, the shuttle, and lessons that can be learned from the shuttle experience. But such leadership cannot be separated from national leadership. Given your research, what can be done or what will it take to strengthen our national leadership? Um, oh, just one other comment about the difference between the, the, the new system. Uh, I said it was like uh, Apollo. What I think is also clear, and this is relevant to your question you just asked, is that it's. I think NASA rec- NASA leaders the leadership from NASA recognizes that that uh, this new system is going to have to have much more involvement of the international community, in part because America doesn't have the kind of money it once had. So. I think there will be a spillover effect from the space International Space Station, which is a successful international project. And I think this new project, going back to the moon and on to Mars, I do think it will be very different in organization. I think it will, be, I think it will build on the, the International Space Station model as in more and more as the years go on, because I do think that globalization is... Uh, 
is probably one of the big, huge trends of our times and will become more so as time goes on. Now, how does that relate to all this relate to national policy? I think that the difference between a leader and a manager, it seems to me, is the leader does look ahead to where the organization ought to be going. And the same thing applies for a, a president looking ahead to where a, where a nation ought to be going. And so I do think the leaders need either have to have vision or they have to have somebody working underneath them who advises them, who has vision about where the country should be going. And then the leader has to be a, a good politician and has to build a constituency for the uh, vision, whatever it may be, be a good tactician as well as a strategist. And the leader has to do what Collins did, recognize that you have to build capacity in an organization to carry on after you're no longer in office. Uh, That means a strong agency that can carry the mission forward. And I think that the leader has to to, uh, be a manager as well as a a politician. The politician to build a constituency, the manager to, to build the capacity to carry out the vision. And I think he has to build a team. I think some of the inadequacies of some of the leaders that that I've studied uh, relate not so much to them, but to the fact that they weren't able to build the team around them that had all the necessary ingredients. And that seems to me that uh, national leaders can learn from organizational leaders. But it, but vision, constituency building, capacity building, the ability to to look look ahead, think long, but act tactically in the short term because they're you're only in office a certain number of years. Well, Professor Lambright, I enjoyed our conversation today. Your research for the IBM Center on Leadership is second to none. I know we'll be doing more work together for the next magazine and beyond. Oh, I've enjoyed it tremendously. I've learned a lot. As I said to you uh, and uh, others, I think it's a tribute to IBM that it has sponsored work on leadership. Uh, it's not the kind of subject that you can get money for or from the National Science Foundation or almost any other place. But I, think, I can't imagine anything more important. I want to thank Professor Harry Lambright of the Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs at Syracuse University for joining us today on the special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors exploring ideas for improving government effectiveness. You may download a copy of his most recent IBM Center report, Forging Governmental Change, Lessons from Transformations Led by Dr. Robert Gates of DOD and Dr. Francis Collins of NIH. You may order or download a free copy of all the reports we discussed today, as well as the articles, at businessofgovernment.org. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government effectiveness. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. The management of the federal workforce, including executives, will be a critical factor in the next president's success. How do you strengthen federal senior leadership, including political appointees and career executives, and enhance their collaboration? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores this subject with Doug Brooke and Maureen Hartney, authors of Managing the Government's Executive Talent. Tune in on Mondays at 11 a.m. for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m.